welcome to POMcast, the podcast brought to you by Pom Pom Quarterly. I'm Lydia Gluck and I'm here with... Sophie Scott. You might know that this podcast, this particular episode, uh, will have a slightly different format to our usual lots of Sophie and Lydia chat and small amount of other people chat. We've uh, flipped the ratio yes, somewhat. Yes, definitely, yeah. Um, so we're recording this in the past. Ooh. Always recording in the past. Yes, but even more in the even past more than usual. Double, yeah, good point. Double quota Triple past. past for you, yeah. Um, because our wonderful producer is on paternity leave. Indeed he is. So give him, a, give him a little break. A little break to have a little baby and stuff. Um, so this is the second instalment of the Knitters in the Round um, discussions that we recorded at POMFest, hosted by Anna Maltz. So this, uh, this debate was uh, crafting consciously. So Anna was uh, joined by four leading practitioners. Who were they? They were Clara Parks. Um, you'll know her from her writings mm-hmm. about wolves. Mm-hmm. Bristol Ivy. Oh, hey, she's got a book coming out with Pom Pom. I think it's already out by oh. the time this podcast comes out. Oh my gosh, yeah. The past. <laughs> and the future. Uh, Julia Billings of Wool and Flower. She sponsored a Pom Pom podcast in the past. She did. Yes. And she does lovely naturally dyed yarn. And Julie Asselin, a cool yarn dyeing lady. Who is in Canada. Oh, she's also been on the podcast. She has. God, that's true. We've got the good, good <laughs> guys, haven't we? So all these lovely ladies get around and uh, a table <laughs> and uh, are discussing what's the, the best environmental choices mm. as a knitter that we can make. Yeah, and they also kind of talk about what it means to them to craft consciously mm-hmm. um, and that that term isn't necessarily one thing it doesn't have to mean organic although it can and there's lots of really interesting uh thoughts regarding that quite complicated subject yes so enough about hearing us talk about it (laughs) yeah why not just listen to it yeah and here you go enjoy Hello, I'm super excited to be here generally and especially with this group of women here um, to talk about crafting consciously and sort of what that means, what that brings up for each of us in what we choose to do and really to kind of start very first by saying that will mean something different to each of us. So what we're giving is how we navigate those ideas rather than any hard and fast rule which if you don't do it means you're dicking over the planet or you know screwing your neighbor or whatever so it's just sort of how we navigate those things and these people are here because I know they're very thoughtful people on conscious like crafting in different ways Bristol has earned her chops as a pattern designer working with Brooklyn Tweed, and we know that all of the mathematical, <laughs> you know, sort of magic that goes on in that brain there. And yesterday, if anybody was here for her talk, what really also came up for me was an idea about the sort of sustainability of inspiration and how you stay interested in 
what you do and how that translates out from you. Uh, Julie Asselin, we know as uh, you know, bilingual, French-Canadian, <laughs> effervescent dyer for a really long time, amazing colours, and using synthetic dyes as opposed to Julia Billings over here, who we know is Wallenflower, who you might see various people with pouches that look like they were made from old tweed coats. And they may well come from this woman here, and they may well have been old tweed coats before. But she also draws on her history from horticulture to do a lot of natural dyeing and being very conscious of where the plants come from and those things. And I think that having these two here together is a really nice way to sort of dispel some of the myths about one of them being better than the other for different things and that would be a nice conversation. Clara Parks, as we have heard you wonderfully speak today already, kind of feels like, you know, New York Times bestseller. We've heard that whole New York Times bestseller for knitting. And really, I think, you know. And yeah, it's totally time. And it's also time, like I kind of think about that and all the millions of different ways that you've come up with to say itchy wool. <laughs> and I just think that you're caring voice in that, like the enthusiasm and the excitement for that to diversify the type of yarns that we use and to find value in those things that for a bracket of time were sort of thought of as itchy and scratchy and, and those things, like that is an incredible act of sort of environmental conscious building in itself. And I think that's why that's why I've got you here. So let's let's start. And I think from that point of view, like that clarity is that we all come to slightly different angles of crafting consciously, and there are very different ways. There's a political angle of that, whether that's a human rights thing and you know the human labor involved in it and what people get paid for what they do, whether it's an environmental concern that could be organic but might not be about being organic. It's finding different names for, you know, there's organic certification, and then there's people who have sheep that you know do really great things with their sheep, but it's never made sense for their farm to be officially certified as that. But if you're feeling comfortable with what they do, is that as good as that? And I think what I'm trying to say is there are all of these different angles, and we can't always be everything. So maybe to talk a little bit about what your particular angle of focus when you talk about conscious crafting, what you mostly think of. And can I start over here? So for me, conscious crafting is multi-layered in a lot of ways. I think it's very easy to get stymied by the idea of ethical work because there's no right answer. Uh, there's no way to do everything perfectly. There's no way to do it all. You'd be sitting in the basement not knitting anything if you had, if you were able to make concessions somewhere. So for me, the discussion of crafting consciously comes to who can I support? Who's doing good in the world? Who's doing good in their community? 
who's doing good to preserve sheep breeds, who's doing good to open up smaller markets for farmers to make that available. Um, how can I promote them? How can I then use proceeds from those sales to go towards charities who are doing the same things? Um, but then I also know that without the support of my community and the fact that I get yarn support from a lot of these things, I would not be able to use most of the yarn that I want to support. That's just not possible for me. So I also think that there's a very interesting discussion to be had about the privilege of conscious crafting and where that sits in our community and how we can make um, this discussion available to all socioeconomic classes. So that's something that I definitely like to focus on and want to keep focusing on um, as part of this community. Yeah, and it's probably good to sort of think about the fact that most of us here aren't choosing if we'll buy dinner or yarn, or like if we'll eat and have yarn or have a roof over our head and have yarn. So to also know that that is a section of how today that's the group we're in. And I think it ties in a little bit with how we do things. Um, you know, for us being in Canada, um, and I'm going to say, you know, like, let's say if we go very local, going to Quebec and then trying to work, let's say that we want to try to work with local yarns or something like that, it's not very viable on the, you know, on the sides of what we're doing with things. So then for us, like the chain You mean in terms of the yarn you would dye, yes, the bases you would use then, to dye You on. know, like there are many things that we need to think about, like who are we working with? Where does it come from? What type of uh, dyes are we using? Um, you know, companies in our areas that we are helping out. You know, also for us, and then that's the question that I wanted to bring in, is, um, you know, we are a small company, but we are here because there are also bigger ones that, yeah. like, makes it possible for us to do things. And then how does it tie in with being conscious and thinking, you know, small, helping out other people? And then does it always mean small? You know, being conscious, does it always mean yeah. small things? And, um, and you know... you mean big in terms of bigger young producers who you're yes. then buying from yeah. rather than because oh, there are big no, like, bigger, bigger companies, they make you look small? No, I mean, like, in the terms of, you know, for us to be able to have custom spun yarns and working with mills, and then if there were um, bigger companies working with them, they wouldn't have any uh, work, so then okay. we wouldn't be able to support yeah. them. And then, you know, something else that I was thinking about is... Um, you know, for example, with Nurtured, the yarn that we are producing with Green Mountain Spinnery, when we started working on that, a lot of people were asking us, um, why do you guys, why aren't you guys doing like single breed, something very close and all that? But when we were working with the spinnery, I said, you know what, you guys buy yarn and, you know, we talked together and we said it would be really good if we were able to uh, like chip in all together and make it like a bigger... Uh, thing for you so then you guys could work like on not, not on a bigger level I'm not explaining this well but I mean like to chip in with them <laughs> and you know like to make it easier on them and yeah. like to support them in that way so then we chose to um, like to use some of the same fibers that they were using to support them and then we were adding to the blend something that we were bringing in but then you know we decided to work uh, with them to 
You have to help me out, people. Infrastructure. Yes. All right. So that's what I meant. <laughs> Infrastructure. <laughs> so, that's, so that's so you know so that's what I mean. So in the terms of you know community and for us it's always about family. You know like it's a very big thing and you know I see the community as a family and then it's I see it as us working together and then you know friendship and all that. So. Yeah, yeah. I think I've really thought about like when we talk about local. I think particularly with like there's this thing that's come up where you know we really like here. It's exciting like Quince and Co and Brooklyn Tweed, which have made so much sense in the states because it's more local. Even though it's a huge country, if you look at it in comparison to the size of Europe, you know those. So in a way, also maybe running through what we're doing is also a discussion of what local what local is, and I do think that in this community that we all build together, we make different sorts of local. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that also does become about the people who we choose as family. <laughs> That was something that I grappled with at the beginning uh, in Knitter's Review, reviewing yarns from all around the world. And people would say, how can, you know, you're not supporting local, you're sending us to France. Um, but <laughs> for me, it was more like shining light on people who are doing valuable work that has a similar impact to what it would be having in my community. They're maintaining a certain uh -huh. value structure and contribution to their local culture and society and families and economy. And that's, so I have like a global definition of local that's more kind of on a spiritual level if we're talking yarn spirit. <laughs> but um, so yeah, for me, crafting consciously, it's always, always been about the materials that you use. Like just knowing anything that you can about where they came from, who made them, what fibers are in them, how were they processed, how were they spun, how were they dyed? Who am I supporting with this? Mm -hmm. And when I started making yarn myself, and I did a little chart of all the different places that were touched by a single skein of yarn, and it was really moving. It was mm -hmm. rather remarkable. And oftentimes you're working with small groups of people who have sort of given up or don't, like they can't find the market. And it's a simple act on our part to even get one skein of yarn, and yet it has such a big impact um, so but but there was a okay I'm gonna quote Bloom County cartoon here <laughs> there's there are limits so there was this cartoon you know, a bunch of people in a restaurant and they said oh my god animals are killed I'm not gonna eat meat anymore and then the next person said oh vegetables they're living too we're not gonna eat them oh my god we can't stand on the floor because we're killing bugs in the last frame they're dangling from the ceiling by their feet and they said oh no there are organisms in the air we're gonna kill them so I feel like there are layers and layers and layers, and it's up to each one of us to choose kind of where we want to slide through that. Mm -hmm. So, like, I eat meat, and yet I am also deeply disturbed by the killing of animals. So, like, I live in a con like conflicted area. And it's like a constant paradox. It's a like, constant paradox. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and the minute that you're, like, black or white, I'm not going to knit any merino at all because in Australia they still, in some places, practice mulesing. And so I'm not going to do any mm -hmm. wool. I'm going to do recycled plastic because that's like... Because that comes from dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and moss will never eat it. <sighs> so anyway, that's, it's, that's where I kind of fall. I agree. I think it's a profoundly complex thing and I think we're constantly changing with it. I, I think as soon as you start trying to lock even yourself into something... You're going to find new conflicts coming up. Um, and in, in a way, that, that should be something fun. That should, you know, something joyful that we see ourselves learning and more and experiencing and talking to people and sharing that. And I think that's a, a potential for growth. Um, 
I think for me, a big part of it is um, about sustaining community and local culture. So, for example, I'm from Australia, and although most people think about Australia as being somewhere that produces huge amounts of wool, we do, but we produce virtually no yarn. So there's very little infrastructure there, and so there's mini mills going on there that are building that, and the local community is slowly getting on board. I mean, it's still very niche, but things look a certain way on the surface, but when you start to scratch, you see what's missing or what's happening. So I think, yeah, that, that's particular interest for me. And maybe something that is an interesting point between the scale of things, the small, because mm. in a way, because there is this yeah. growing knitting community who mm -hmm. think that's important, those micro mills are starting to pop up in Australia Absolutely. in a way that it was kind of dominated by two big Huge. ones yeah. until yeah. Mm -hmm. until very recently. There wasn't the opportunity of diversity. Absolutely, definitely. And I think also looking at the size of flocks, and I know you've been in New Zealand mm -hmm. and I think in the States and Canada as well, we have huge flocks in, in Australia. They're massive. They're millions of head. And, and looking at how to run that as a sustainable enterprise is very different to having a small flock in Britain somewhere, which is really lovely and where, you know, the shepherd can know each sheep individually. You know, it's just not possible. So how do we do that in a sustainable way? I think that's really interesting and also really challenging. I'm yeah, not sure the, the scale. I think yes. you were talking about Merino and then the flocks that were growing in China as well. That I mean, growing in scale of farming rather than like growing out of the ground. Yeah. I, 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 I know sheep don't grow on trees or out of the ground. Yeah, I wish they did. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, that, I mean, that, that is a concern. I don't know. It's just, it's a paradox. It's mm -hmm. always a paradox. Mm -hmm. And the market is always shifting. Australia and New Zealand are huge, huge wool producers. But now China has flocks that from some years they produce more wool than Australia. But they have problems with the fiber right now, but they're solvable problems. And that's where I feel like it's even more important for us right now, like we've heard the warning, to build the infrastructure to take, take the, what do you want to say, take the slack when they no longer need our wool. If they stop importing from Australia, Absolutely. or they're the single largest importer of uh, wool from the United States. So, and, and we actually are in a position, I know that like very high up, the American sheep industry in the US, they had a list of like, what is the hope for wool? Mm -hmm. And right up there was specialty, it was basically specialty yarn for the hand knitting market. So we're not, <laughs> yeah, we're not invisible, we're not mm -hmm. at all. So. Mm -hmm. Can I ask too, what the, do you know what the current running price is for like a kilo of wool in Australia versus oh, US? I don't. Do I get you? an email every week. I could pull it up on my phone. Do you really? I do. Really? Yes. <laughs> it's a commodity. It's it's very cool. And from week to week, it changes yeah, depending on. It is a commodity. It's we just should... slightly larger to store than gold. You know? Yeah. <laughs> slightly. Bit, bit lighter, lighter though. Yeah. 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 Do you, do, you, do you want to pull it up? Do you, you? Do you want to? <laughs> no, should we pull it up now? I'd, well, I'd be curious because I think I think the place of the farmer is a huge part yeah. of the crafting consciously and how much they're getting paid as opposed to the overhead of the production system. Because I know like merino yarn coming from when I was in New Zealand, and I think it's the case in the UK here that it costs more to shear than it did for the fleece itself. Mm -hmm. So there was just not a sustainable market for that. And I'm curious as to whether with the infrastructure going in Australia, um, 
and with the current stream going from the U.S. to China, whether there is a set rate that makes sense and whether if that changes, if the bottom's going to drop out of that market and there needs to be something more sustainable for the farm culture. Well, it also changes depending on the currency, the exchange mm -hmm. rate. But I can tell you that um, a fine quality grease merino wool is currently going for about five fifty a pound. But then the numbers in this report, they're more like very, very large farms that haven't found the knitters yet. Yes. <laughs> and so they're getting, for clean wool, I would say it's in the $4 range per pound, which means uh, that's half of the wool. You lost half the weight in scouring it. So they're really getting $2 per pound which, is that like one sheep? Oh, oh, right, right. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Like, <laughs> I'm that way with kilos. I'm like, one kilo is, no, I don't no, know, I mean, the weight like, of an no, elephant. Like when we're talking about um, that. Like, it depends uh, on the breed, isn't it? it mm -hmm. Yeah, it depends on the yeah. breed. Maybe 12 pounds? Yeah, I think or Marino. 8 to 12? But I think, yeah, I think these things of economy, like, it sort of, it feels super dry, but there are so many ways in which economy just does affect what we do. It also affects, you know... Buying when we buy yarn, even at the later stage of it, when you calculate that backwards, like I think we've gotten a bit more conscious about how much we pay for something that has mm -hmm. gone through a hand dyer, but it's still framed by what's an okay amount mm -hmm. to spend on something, but it should probably be even more if we yeah, were going to have the knockback effect. Right, yeah, it's, based on, it's based on yeah, the existing market definitely. rather than on actual livable wages. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it's like that for every craft. You know, like for us, um, you know, even with, with customers or with stores, I mean, we have to keep in mind that, like, how much does someone would be willing to pay for something? Yeah. You know, could we um, could we charge more? Definitely, but then you have to keep in mind, like, is it is it possible for someone to buy it? Is it viable for a store? Is yeah. it viable for a knitter? And then you have to keep all of this in mind. And it's slightly connected, but I was just going to say earlier, you know, when we talked about, um, you know, like local and economy and how you want to do things and all that. Um, you know, recently for us, um, you know, all our yarns are spun in Canada or the States. And then the mill that we work with in Canada is the only worsted weight one. There's like only one, is the only one. Um, and, you know, like recently working with them, we work closely and we go and we visit them and all that. And we started questioning, you know, it's close to us. Um, and then recently we started questioning if we still wanted to work with them, not because, well, so it's local, but then we're not necessarily um, agreeing with not like, not like work practice. It's not like they're not paying their employees <laughs> or anything. But I mean, um, you know, like for so for us, also like uh, you know, like uh, moral issues and like the way that they do, like their values, is very important to us. And then we started questioning whether or not we would continue um, working with with them. And then you know, I'm asking you guys. Um, You'll help me decide, right? Everyone gets to chip in, and then we decide if we move things. Um, <laughs> no, but so it's a question that 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 uh, had risen up where we were like, okay, do we move this? Um, you know, because we feel more comfortable working with someone else, but it's not going to be as local as it is right now. Yeah, I think mm -hmm. that local thing. It's also, and I think that that's really particularly, and this is maybe one of my things in in the U UK. Um, 
it's really important when we look at local that it's or it's not nationalism, that it's actually yeah, local. Definitely. Yeah. And what I found are really, you can look up on the map, you can, um, if you look up maps, and then you look for it as the crow flies map, and you'll get to Paris in half the time you'll get to Shetland, mm -hmm. for example. So if we're talking about local, it might, mm -hmm. yeah, it may also be a different country rather than... It's true. I'm just going to say that, you know, for... Uh, so we're, as I said earlier, with Nurtured, we're working with Green Mount Spinnery. They're like three hours away from us. Yeah. And then, you know, the other mill that we work with in Canada is like 10 hours away. Mm -hmm. So then this one is much further. It reminded me, you know, like when you said nationalism, I think, you know, like where does your pride of local uh, stand for when, when you're like, oh, this is for my country, or you know, like, <laughs> this is for the people. I mean, um, honestly, it comes down to marketing as well. Like, yeah. there is definite value in being able to say, you know, this is a Canadian product mm -hmm. spun in Canada, this is Wolf, all that sort of stuff. Like, that's also market value because people see that and that's their tie to, and that's their yeah. kind of keyword association with ethical crafting mm -hmm. and conscious crafting. Well, and definitely. I think, yeah, they'll often, then you understand that you know you're in a country that has a sort mm -hmm. of a certain minimum wage or a certain standard right. of living or those things, even though in a lot of, you know, home crafting and piecework situations, there are definite ways of skirting those. Mm -hmm. Oh, I think it can happen in any country, yeah. I would believe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. That's but why I, yeah. I would give you permission, like what I would be more interested in, and there's just the geeky side, but if you chose to go someplace else, I would love to know, okay, fibers from here, mm -hmm. it was scoured here, and this is why. Yeah. It was scoured, it was spun here, and this is why. So even if it was, you know, this is a Canadian product, but we had it spun in Pennsylvania. Uh -huh. But if you have a compelling and honest reason why. Definitely. Like, yeah. I'd love something where it shows real intention in every decision. And Definitely. So. Yeah, it always, you know, that's the way that we work. And then I was kind of sad to think that, oh, like, I, maybe we'll have to let this go. You know, because it yeah. doesn't fall into yeah. what we're doing anymore just because, you know, we don't agree on a, on a couple of things. But I think it's still very... Um, so then in that term, I'm thinking maybe... No, it's not... It's still local, but I mean, it's... Um, it's I, to me, it's even more conscious. Mm. It's not more conscious, but I mean, I'll explain to you why I'm doing this and then you'll understand and you'll... Yeah, like you know, you'll be happy. <laughs> like the morality. And That's the, it, exactly. The, yeah. And companionship and kinship. Yeah. And can it. you have a chat with them and be like, so, this thing isn't quite working. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that happens many times. <laughs> I think transparency in that sense is yeah. hugely yeah. important. And I think mm -hmm. if you can explain why, then people will be on board with it. But I think I used to work in organic food mm -hmm. kind of production and stuff. And, you know, there was always a lot of discussion for growers about certification or not certification because it's a really big process to go through. <clears throat> it's massive expenses, but also a lot of paperwork, a lot of time. Mm -hmm. And some growers just are not able to do that. But the problem with that is then it allows you have to it has to if you're not doing certification, you have to you have to really be able to rely on your transparency because otherwise people can just man, very subtly manipulate. and we and we're all kind of prone to that. We're all compliant and com or complicit. You know, when something feels good, we kind of, sometimes we don't scratch the surface to really know what's going on. And I don't really know how you measure that or how you embody it, but I think in any industry or any community, there's a, it's a, it's a slippery slope. Can I add something? <laughs> it just, no, but it just reminded me of, I'll, I'll put something out there, but, um, you know, like you said, transparency. And I think sometimes also, um, 
hold on, how can I put this? So there's this, okay, I'll explain the situation, you'll see where I'm going. Um, so as I said, you know, we, we, right now we're working with a Canadian mill, and then there are um, other end dyers in Quebec where I'm from um, that states on their label that they use a Quebec company, you know, like they, that their yarn comes from Quebec. And then for us, you know, talking always about how we're, our, where we get our yarns and that we're really thinking about all this, people are always... I get more and more questions recently about, oh, then why don't you use the yarn from Quebec like other people? And then it's very hard for me to, to answer because I know that the yarn dyers that use those yarns, they truly believe in their mind that the yarn comes from Quebec because that's what they're told. But I mean, for... Um, you know, when you think about it, it's actually impossible. So, um, you know, like that company is based in, in, so what happens is when you call them is they say, we have a, you know, like our office is in Montreal. And then you ask, oh, do you have a mail? So, so you know, like I actually called them and I was like, what is that? And then they're like, oh, well, we have a mail in, in Quebec and, you know, it's on, the, it's on the South Shore. And I'm like, oh, really? Okay. And then what do you guys do? Oh, we have all kinds of yarns and all that. So then it means that if I go visit your mail, like, I'll see my yarn being spun there. It's like, oh, no, we do yarn for fire retardant things. Oh, okay. <laughs> so then, you know, do, your office is here, and then do you have a mill here? Yes. And then, you know, like, but the wool yarn is made elsewhere. And then it's a really good marketing point, and then people are kind of, like, happy to use it, you know? Um, so, yeah, we have to ask questions. I think yeah. that's the thing. You have to ask questions. Which is hard, because, I mean, that that puts so much more time and effort into the situation. And it's like, mm -hmm. at some point, you just want to knit a goddamn sweater. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. um, <laughs> but yeah, it's so useful and so worthwhile to just take a minute to step back mm -hmm. and find the people that have been transparent and have done the research. Mm -hmm. Because I think finding the people who value the product means that you're going to have a product that you value and that you want to work with. And I think also people want to trust you, you know, and, and you want people to trust you and you want to be transparent and we're, you know, like it, it's part of us to, to, to be this way. But I understand that for knitters, you know, like the, the informations that you get are the ones that the companies are giving you. So then, um, you know, they we try, lie to we us, tried to do they? our best. No. <laughs> they would never lie. No. The problem is that we all want to hear a good story, right? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. You know? That's true. And it's heartbreaking when, oh, yeah. And it's the story that sells. That's the thing. It's like if you don't have the story, it doesn't work. So inventing a story is sometimes yeah. <laughs> a really helpful way to get something to sell. If it was spun by nuns in a water-powered mill, you know, just down exactly. from angels and butterflies, like... Surprise there isn't yarn yeah. spun by nuns in a water-powered There is a yarn <laughs> spun in the Swiss Alps that in a water-powered mill, which is just no nuns. close. So no we, nuns. Could, we no could, nuns. could bring None. some nuns. <laughs> oh. 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 <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yes. It's going to become a habit. Oh. Oh. <laughs> You're quick. <laughs> Do we continue on that? No. Oh. Any, anybody? <laughs> so, you want to call us to order? <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> I'm leaving. So if we're thinking about, <laughs> if we move, if we go with that sweater now, that we're, we're making that, that sweater. So say we've, we've picked that yarn. What, what sweater do we pick? You just download a free pattern on the internet, you know? <laughs> Ow, stop it. <laughs> I know where you live, Clara. <laughs> yeah, she does. We could build a tunnel between our two houses. <laughs> 
That's, I have controversial opinions about that. Can I share controversial opinions? Can she share controversial Is that okay? Is anyone going to hurt me? About free um, patterns or? About, no, just about patterns in general. Um, I think there's elements of sustainability that we are missing in huge amounts in garment construction at the moment and in pattern development in the way that we make our garments and the yarn that we use in the way that we structure them. It's not a piece of slow fashion. It's something that's going to lose its shape. Like So to be bluntly specific, something made out of finger wash, super weight, no, I'm sorry, finger wash? <laughs> super wash fingering weight <laughs> or four ply at a loose gauge without any structure. So a top-down raglan. It's, it's potato chip knitting. It's fantastic. It makes use of the beautiful yarns that are out there. But it's not something that's going to stand in your wardrobe for years. The yarn's going to stretch. It has no structure. The yarn's going to pill. It's not going to be something that you're going to be able to see look amazing year to year. And I am fully aware of the hypocrisy on that, that I'm currently wearing a superwash merino fingering weight sweater, but it's seamed and there's structure and I've worn it for four years straight um, and I love it. But it's, I think that we have some education to do in terms of garment construction, in terms of gauge, in terms of the right yarn for the right project mm -hmm. to make sure that what we actually create as knitters does our work justice and lasts for as long as the time we put into it deserves. Mm -hmm. You know, so I think that that's um, that's something that I'm really looking to work more on in the future is to make sure that what I do with construction does the yarn justice and will last and will be something that will stand up for a while. So I was in Shetland a few weeks ago and we saw stuff in the museum that had been knit and spun 60 years ago. And it was pristine because they did the right yarn and the right project and the right structure all together and it holds up. Mm -hmm. And you don't see, you're not gonna see a super wash merino fingering weight loose gauge sweater getting handed down through the ages and hanging up in a and museum they, in they 20 years. They may have even unpicked it and, and uh, exactly. dropped it and re-knitted it, you know, and it's held up to that as well. Uh, I was gonna, I think it's very interesting what you're uh, bringing up because for us, it also applies like on the yarn level. Recently, um, we just released a, a new sock yarn um, and it's American Merino eye twist and we really put a lot of thought into it thinking about sock knitting and then we're super excited and we're launching it and then I don't want to scare you people, you can go and buy it. But I mean, um, like we actually had a hard time uh, at first because people were not understanding um, like why we were doing this in the terms of, I'm saying, you know what, I really thought about you knitting socks and I want them to last forever. And this is what this is meant to be doing. And then what we got is, it's not soft. So then I was like, mm, well, it is it's enough. Not the point. You know, like that's another thing, like with yarn and then, you know, you're like, oh, it's not, it's not as soft as I would have wanted to be. And soft is really good for certain projects, by the way. But I mean, you know, like for, for use and, um, you know, like thinking about the project that you want to be doing. And then, uh, you know, like it's the, so this yarn is, is for your feet, you know, it's, it's, and I mean, you could do shawls or other things with it, but I mean, it's, it's to walk in and for them to be uh, good for a very long time. If you want to wear it, I mean, it's meant for comfort, but I mean, it's not as soft and then it has a purpose. So then like for us in, in yarn terms, it's something that we run into um, sometimes too. Yeah. 
And you've also had lots of discussions with superwash versus non-superwash, right? Like that's been something that you've thought about. I know we've had a conversation about this yes. a while ago. <laughs> <laughs> so with, you know, I think that with end dyeing, I don't know how it is with you with uh, natural dyes, is do... Um, I'm I'm sorry. I don't even know if you have superwash. No, no, no. I don't I don't dye wash dye superwash, but I've certainly have in the past, like in yes, trials and stuff. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that so going with consciousness, um, you know, there are different process of superwash, and then there are different things. Like there are many things to consider. And I, in my heart, in the way that I see my knitting family and my the knitting industry, I really hope and I I see people doing good and like going forward. Um, you know, good superwash method. Like eco-wash exactly. method, yeah. And then, you know, like, um, I, I want to believe that that's what people want to do. And I think that with end dyeing, um, anyway, for us, you know, with, with the dyes that we are using, when you think about um, who wants to buy that and, and, you know, what is it known for, like, co like the colors, the bright colors, um, you can go around it if you want, but I mean, there's a part of that that's like associated with superwash. So you but mean the color that you get when you're dyeing on a superwash is different than the color you'll get definitely, if you dye definitely. on Definitely, definitely. And then I think that people in their mind not. associate like and dyed, uh, you know, bright colors on a superwash being vibrant because you're like, oh, it's different. And then, you know, like the method have changed so much that Honestly, you know, when we pick at the place where the superwash is done, the people that we work with, um, there are there are good methods now that can be uh, used. And you know, honestly, there are you know the superwash that we use, I feel good about. So then, you know, like um, I, what I want to say is, I I can, I think that the companies you know want to go toward that, and I wish that in the future, you know, it's all going to be. And we may like also that. reach a stage where we've learned how to wash sweaters properly and we might not need <laughs> no. to wash anymore. From the, no. I mean, is, is there a, you know, as we watch our community, like what they like change? Yeah. How? Well, I think that part, that, not responsibility, opportunity really does fall in the hands of the designers because now we have this whole generation of designers who are not beholden to any yarn company as their employer. And you can choose... Yeah, well, it's not terrifying no, at all. It's not their responsibility. Yeah. They're completely independent. They have no security whatsoever. <laughs> um, but you now can choose which yarn is right for which project. And so I, it, with designers and patterns, you could pick, pick the crunchy. I will not say the S-C-R-A-T-C-H-Y word. You can pick the crisp and the crunchy and the vibrant and robust, the rye bread, toothy <laughs> texture. Um, you can pick it and explain why you chose it and why. I mean, because if we we kind of have this kind of popularity thing going on, so use it responsibly, and you can totally drive. But then, going back to my original point, that goes back into economic situations, because often yeah. the crunchier ones are the more expensive, small batch limited edition ones, mm -hmm. so my pattern might then not be as accessible mm -hmm. to the average knitter. So you get into that dilemma, again, paradox, this whole conversation is paradox. Can you show it in two? In your abundant spare time? In my abundant spare time and my, my, millions, my millions of simple knitters. Well, no, who, I, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think <laughs> I've thought about that with, with the way that you put out yarn, where you put out these amazing, you know, traceable, thoughtful yarns. But they'd be really hard to offer pattern support. Impossible. For, because you couldn't, you know, yeah. you're not, by nature, if you do a one-off batch of yarn, you can't, 
you get it and then it goes out to knitters. It, there isn't the time for that yeah. to sit and go to a designer mm -hmm. who then sits with it and makes something with it. And actually in a really, if you've got a really tiny batch, giving somebody 10 skeins in order to make a sweater is a is actually quite a huge chunk of that small batch. Can yeah. I just say, Clara did do that for me. She gave me 10 skeins of corn. <laughs> Thank you, Clara. That's love, right? <laughs> but it really, yeah, it's a horrible business plan. Don't do it. <laughs> like, as soon as you figure everything out, you like break the mold and go on to your next problem. But yeah. Um, in terms of the finance? Well, no, I, I think I was just thinking of just as something to kind of bring up because I'm not sure if that's something that specifically, you know, that may be something that we know on the, you know, because we have mm. chats and things and I don't know if on the other side, like at this stage, we've had this amazing thing with Ravelry that it makes it really clear, like substitution has become yeah. a really, really useful thing, but there are still knitters who will only knit a pattern in the thing that it said, ideally in the color that it's mm -hmm. in in the picture, <laughs> right? Yeah. So there is that gap of going, oh, you just, Clara's got a yarn, oh my gosh, what can I do with it? Oh, there's no pattern for it. Like mm -hmm. just maybe to just have, yeah. I try to like sh show swatches or ideas. I I'm kind of being mean in that I'm forcing people to, like, no, I'm not going to give you every, like, you got to think here. But it's a good kind of thinking. And and speaking of economics, I just wanted to plant a seed of an idea that I had. <laughs> okay, you know how some people have wine clubs? I don't know if they do that here in the UK. But you, you pool your money, and once a month somebody hosts a gathering, and it's your responsibility to find the most esoteric and bizarre yarn, or wine or a couple of wines, and you t sip it, and you think deep thoughts, and you discuss. Well, you could do exactly the same thing with yarn and have a swatching club mm -hmm. and like not even tell people what it is in your whole evening. Well, of course, mm -hmm. you have to have wine with it. Well, yeah, no, but uh, what you can do is you can pair. We've done, with Anna at Wild and Woolly has done this, where she's paired the cheese that you eat came from the same sheep that made the wool and or like the region where the cider came from was right around the fields so like you can make it a whole like all the places all the things evening oh my god wow. and then you could even like you can even dye it with the colors that are there right like I think people are becoming I think as knitters we're all becoming much more engaged and, and interested and educated about it, but there are always going to be people who just want to knit it the way it is. And yeah. so, you know, yeah. it's a... But there is that, yeah, there is that togetherness of it. And But I also think, like, that, that natural dyeing is another perfect mm -hmm. example of it's not going to be the same, yeah. and that's, like, inherently part of it like that's the beauty of it you have to make a celebration of that rather yeah. than it becoming uh you know a limitation of it and that kind of takes a leap of consciousness I think as a dyer but also as a as consumers you know yeah I haven't found the answer to that quite yet but, <laughs> <And> the, <laughs> but the scale too like there's that it's inherently a kind of small batch yeah. thing too right like yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I can't, I mean, I'm tiny scale and I'm only just starting now as a, you know, to do small production um, and I can't really imagine ever being big and I think we were talking just really briefly before about the challenges of natural dyeing versus, what do we call it, chemical dyeing? I mean, what is non-natural dyeing? Synthetic dyeing? Synthetic dyeing? 
Because, yeah, because I was going to say, you know, before we, as I told you, you know, we um, recently we switched the dyes that we are using, and then before we were using acid dyes, and then, you know, when you think about wool dyeing, you're always thinking acid dyeing. But then um, recently we switched to fiber reactive, so then I don't know, like chemical. I, is that a scary word? Because sometimes it's not. could be. I don't know. <laughs> well, I think reactive dyeing versus acid dyeing, they both sound pretty... Like, yeah. Rah, I'm pretty, like, comic booky. I like that reactive. That means that your skin's going to, like, slap you back. I like <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Those needles? Screw you. <laughs> what were you going to say? I think... Yeah, I was going to say that I imagine I'll always be small scale. I mean, some, I see somebody like Christine... Is it Bea? I don't know how you Bea. I mean, she's the biggest... A verb for keeping warm yeah, in, keeping in, warm. in Oakland, She's kind of, I think, California. in terms of scale, is she the biggest natural dyer around? Like, does anybody know anyone? Shilla Stair does natural dyes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So maybe on a similar par. You know, they're much bigger than I am, but they're still tiny compared to even other indie dyers, but also like larger companies. And I'm not really sure of the scale, but I'm certainly finding already that there's... There's real challenges in natural dyeing that means that it's not just an easy, easier, more natural option than synthetic dyes, you know. And um, it just shows you, I think, that there's, you know, issues in any kind of production. So, for example, for me, I live in a flat. I dye in my kitchen. Um, and water, we, we take a lot more uh, water. Well, for, for me anyway, I use a lot more water to rinse my yarn to get the to get the rinse water to get to run clear than I think any acid dyes or reactive dyes that I've ever tried. So, just for me alone, I think, wow, if I ever move back to Australia, mm -hmm. I would really, really have to consider continuing doing this or how I would do it because even in Scotland, I feel like the water consumption is huge, but in Australia, we're, you know, like we're in a drought kind of pretty much permanently. So, and I imagine California, I, I'm really interested with Christine, like how she manages that and... Maybe she showers with her yarn. <laughs> <laughs> really? yeah. Double up. Totally. She's always like slightly so, you know, tinted. I, say that again? She's always slightly tinted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I've started to use my dye baths over and over again, like to use to get exhaust colours, exhaust colours, and then to dye them with another colour. So to get complex shades from minimum numbers of dye baths mm -hmm. so that I don't have to constantly be just changing my dye bath and, and replenishing the water there. But, you know, I think that's not such an issue for you. So there's a... There's well, a for us, there. you know, I, I we think about it still because, you know, it uses... I mean, yeah. just, you're just using water. Mm -hmm. I'm always like, no. Um, so... You know, like, again, just as you do, you know, we try to, whenever it's possible for us to reuse it or, like, cool it down or, like, bring the pH back or whatever. So then that's what we're trying to, to, um, we're always trying to think about the best way to, like, not use Energy as much. Yeah. And then, you know, something I'm just throwing out there. Also, it depends on, you know, as you said, it depends on where you are because you're saying, oh, even here I don't really feel good about it. And then if I was to go back to Australia, for us it's the same, you know, being in Canada and having like filtration systems and the water going through it anyway. I'm not saying that I'm dumping it everywhere. But, um, you know, like you, um, like, for, so it's, it's much different for us to use more, let's say, than for another place yeah. to use as much. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that... There are those things where we also have to just stop and go, we're doing an amazing thing. We're making yeah. things ourselves. Yeah. Like the consciousness that we bring to that for ourselves, I think once you've made a sweater or a pair of socks, you'll never ever buy a pair in the same way again. Yeah. And I think that when somebody sees us 
making something, mm -hmm. it lets them know that that's possible. Mm -hmm. And I think that that knock-on, yeah. like that knock-on effect, it's so easy to, to forget that side. That what we do, I think, is totally inherently amazing and good and talks about the right things. It talks about making things based on community. It, it's about passing on skills which have a long history of being passed on through generosity. It talks so, in a way, to somewhat remember that before we get so bogged down with the like, oh, and we could do this better and we could do that better. Mm -hmm. But I think every single person who knits is continually striving for better in everything they do. They come take classes, they learn yeah. new things. It's, it's inherently part of who we are. So it's, it's yes, I totally 100% agree with you, but I also think every single one of Just us... A little. Little pat on the back, but also a little bit of a kick in the butt. Yeah. At the same time, like yeah. we're but we're that, all people that. Yeah. But that kick strive can and feel like constant, and I yeah. guess as yeah. I'm trying to conscious that people may want to go outside and go get a bit more yarn oh, and things we should like probably that. Shut up now. In terms of the timing, because <laughs> we yeah. could keep on no, talking. No, I want to keep talking. Like, yeah. I keep talking. Um, yeah, to kind of to think that go out thinking like. What we're doing is good, like, and that in that there are so many ways that we can be super duper extra conscious about about what we do. I was thinking about toilets when you were talking about water. I was thinking about that moment where the moment when we use grey water to flush our loos, then maybe we need to worry about the yarn we use. Mm. But right now we use drinking water to flush toilets. Mm -hmm. So if we decide to use some of that drinking water for dyeing yarn, maybe on the scale of things, exactly. mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot less people dyeing yarn than flushing loose. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. And, you know, I think in the end, like we're, regardless of the level where we're at, you know, we're all trying to do our best as knitters, yeah. as, you know, in the industry and all that. And we all have to feel good about what we're doing. And I think it was interesting in the question that you sent us also, you know, you were asking what's, like, what do you do consciously to support, like, the, the knitting, in, like, support the knitting community and not be over-consuming. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's like to create new knitters and, um, you know, to get people interested in, in fiber um, things so that people get, you know, more more knitters. So then you bring friends with you yeah. to these <laughs> bring things. Bring friends, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so those of you who are feeling super duper conscious about you saw something you wanted to get, feel free to sneak out. If anybody would like to ask questions, now would be the time to, to do that. What about the role of virtual yarn uh, is the knitting community sustainable without local yarn stores? Uh, not the community I want to be a part of. No, I really don't. I feel like local yarn stores, is, it's not just a grocery store where you go to buy six onions to cook a meal. It's, it's a community space mm -hmm. where you go, and it's a cradle-to-the-grave relationship that yeah. they offer you, that they're going to help you choose a pattern and support you when things go wrong and celebrate at the end of it what beautiful work that you did. You can't get that 
in many other ways on that intense, like, face-to-face yeah. -face way. And like, I was just going you know, like to add for us being end-dyers, and I mean, we all have a different um, uh, business model, but, you know, we made the conscious choice, actually, to um, do mostly wholesale to support uh, local yarn shops because I truly believe in the community that they bring, and that's why I made that choice to build, like, to set up our business model around this other than selling it ourselves. And also, I mean, it, it brings other, um, you know, it's, it's a different way of doing things, but then, you know, like, some, yeah. so it's something to think about. And yeah. I think you were pot potentially also asking, like, what happens if your customers only want to come in and buy really cheap acrylic yarn from you as a, as a local yarn shop? That's what they can afford, right? Um, I think that, you know, you grow up together, right? Like, I think that it's it's a... It's a teamwork thing, so it's an education on both sides. At the same time, if like your yarn, local yarn shop only sold stuff you don't like, you'd actually, if you're feeling community-minded, it's probably good to go and have a chat with them and say, hey, look, I'd love it if you stopped this type of thing, because then I would come and buy it from you, not from the internet. Mm -hmm. um, in the same way that as a local yarn shop, if you only have acrylic and then maybe you have, you know, this one locally dyed organic yarn like in a little basket and somebody comes in and sees that and will get that, then you can see how to grow from that. But it does take yeah. it being there and being possible. And I think that we've got an odd situation where I think the online is having like how do we as knitters how do we as shoppers support our local yarn stores because they are so essential they're such essential hubs of the community and we can't just use them as libraries where we go and look at a, mm -hmm. a pattern book and then go and get it for two or three pounds less you know and we can't only buy at festivals, yeah. if I can say that too. I think that's a huge like, thing. It's, yeah. You know, it's a funny thing. Like, <laughs> we got to be careful that we spread yeah. where we get stuff. Yeah. Because if we only buy it on holiday and only buy it on a special, like, event thing, that doesn't help them take over. And yet they're the people that we go to when we're stuck because they're right there. And sometimes YouTube videos don't give you all the answers <laughs> or you've watched 10 of them and you still don't bloody get it. So like, I do think that an intrinsic part of crafting consciously is working out ways that we have local communities that are fed into and supported by a kind of global online. But at the hub of that local is, if we're lucky, is a vibrant yarn shop. Mm -hmm. um, I think... I and many. Yeah. It's many, so important to remember, right? Because we also get into this point of like... I know in London they all closed for a really long time. There weren't any. And I talk to a lot of people who go, well, my only option is online. And I think that this is kind of a global problem. But then it, this thing happens where you kind of go, you need to be the best one in your area. Um, and, like, all the other ones are competition. And I kind of feel like if we were so many, like, if you look back there would have been a yarn shop in every village and in every neighborhood of every big town. And to sort of think like at some point again, we could be enough people to support that and rather than feel that competition.
that could be, that is also an option. It's been lovely to see in Edinburgh the, you know, the craft crawl that happens where I know I don't know the politics in the knitting community in Edinburgh, I'm sure things go on, but seeing all the yarn shops work together and now this year the craft shops, you know, where it becomes an event where they work together, they all have slightly different product, but they support each other and then, you know, it creates a, a more of a vibe and a buzz yeah. and a community than if they all do their own thing, which yeah. is a little bit more the case in other places. And I know that very often Yarn Shop Day is the single biggest day for yarn shops. So it's still, even for a local yarn shop, it takes an event like that to remind us to go in and get something from them. Yeah. So mm. I guess un unintentionally we've come around to one of my favourite sort of conscientious things. <laughs> yeah. 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 Remembering... Yeah. Well, then you can't replicate the feeling that you get when you walk into a really good yarn store. Yeah. I mean, online, that's sort of like, you know, in a pinch, if you want a, a pencil, you can blah, blah, blah. But, like, to go into a really good yarn store, yeah, yeah the smell, <laughs> even the kind of muted sound, because all the, the wool muffles the sound, and the colors, and you yeah. can just, like, roll around. <laughs> so there should be an admission fee. Maybe that would be... <laughs> Well, I think so much more of what takes what brings people to knit is is not about the knitting, really. It's about, like, I've worked in yarn shops and people come in and sometimes you can see them hesitating at the door. You know, they're nervous. They might be going through a really hard time in their life and they think, I want to do something nice, or they're having kids or, you know, some other big celebration or big, really tough time. And, and you're just facilitating an opening in a community. The, the, the knitting is secondary. And so... Having the yarn shop, that doesn't happen online. So it's, you know, it's profound. Yeah. And we're responsible for that as people in, in mm -hmm. that community. So. Thank you so much for, for you. coming. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Well, thanks again to all of the knitters who were in the round talking um, whilst seated in a semicircle. <laughs> <laughs> so just a little uh, sort of visual there just at the end. Yeah. Um, yes, thanks again to Anna for hosting um, and to all our uh, participants. So Clara, Bristol, Julia and Julie. And thanks to you guys for listening. We should be back next month with a more traditional style podcast. A Christmas style podcast, maybe? Could it be us singing a Christmas song out of tune? Oh, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> That's what people have come to know and love, right? Oh boy. We'll so, release an album one day. Yeah. Um, yes. All the thanks. Mm -hmm. We'll see you soon. Take care, Pomcats. We love you. Bye! Produced by Lydia Gluck and Sophie Scott. Lots of help from Eli Block, who created the original music for this show. For more Eli-related music, go to goodgirlandbadtimes.com. Thanks, as always, to Megan Fernandez, co-creator and editor of Pom Pom Quarterly. And thanks also to the lovely Amy and Gail. Thank you to our panel members, Clara Parks, Bristol Ivy, Judah Billings and Julie Asselin. And of course, for Anna Maltz for being our host. Of course, a big thank you to all you Pom Pom buyers, subscribers and listeners. You can buy your copy of the magazine and subscribe too at our online shop, pompommag.com forward slash shop. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and why not leave a review? 
Send any feedback or ideas to podcast at pompommag.com and don't forget to keep in touch with us by the podcast group on the Pompom Ravelry Forum.